Brian McLaren is an author, a pastor, a leading voice in what has been called the emergent church movement. In more than a dozen highly acclaimed books, he explores the intersection of the gospel with contemporary life and provides a fresh vision of what it means to be a person of faith in a postmodern world. He's a graduate of the University of Maryland where he earned his MA in English. During the eight years that he was teaching college English, he also helped form Cedar Ridge Community Church, an innovative non-denominational church in the Baltimore area. In 1986, he left higher education to become the church's founding pastor, serving in that capacity until 2006 and helping Cedar Ridge to earn its reputation as a leader among emerging missional congregations. In today's presentation, he will focus on the topic of his most recent book, A New Kind of Christianity, and offer his perspective on the critical issues shaping the church of today and tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Brian McLaren. Thank you. Well, it is a real honor for me to be part of this 29-year history at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Uh, I'm honored to join all of you in seeking to understand and respond to the complex ethical issues that we all face in today's uh, uh, amazing and exciting and sometimes terrifying world. When I looked over the list of the 200 speakers uh, uh, who've been part of this forum in the past, I recognized so many of my heroes that I, I feel especially honored and humbled and grateful to add my voice to theirs and to join this conversation that you all have been participating in for decades here in Minnesota. I'm sure we have a wide variety of people here in the room today as well as those who are joining us from a distance. I'm sure we have folks here who would consider themselves secular, others religious, probably quite a few who would call themselves spiritual but not religious. Uh, and then among our folks who would call themselves religious, I'm hopeful that we would have Muslims, that we'd have Jewish people, we'd have Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, and others in the room. And then among Christians, I would be so happy if we would look around and recognize Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, mainline Protestant, Evangelical, Charismatic, and none or all of the above. And, uh, uh, and that we would just look around the room and see that we that we are all in a real way invested in one another's religious tradition and in one another's religious life. Because the truth is in today's world, the health of any one religious tradition affects all of the rest of us. If the world's Hindus are conflicted or living in harmony, it affects all of us. If the world's Christians, who make up about 33% of the world's population, speaking broadly, if the world's Christians are living in harmony and living from a deeply spiritual center that sends us into the world with compassion and love and respect, the world would be a very different place than if our Christian tradition is sending 33% of the world's people in, out to meet their neighbors with anxiety or suspicion or skepticism, fear, or resentment. The same applies to the world's 
24% of, uh, of inhabitants who are Muslim. And I think all of us in this decade wake up every day in a world where we all feel that the ability, especially of 33% of the world's Christians and 24% of the world's people who are Muslims, if they don't get along, everybody suffers. And if they do get along, everyone benefits. I believe it was an old Buddhist Chinese proverb that said, when two elephants fight in the forest, the grass suffers the most. <laughs> and if our world's largest and most powerful and most wealthy and most, can I also say, well-armed religions are not being resourced by communities of faith that are, that are drawing from the deepest possible wells of spiritual insight and wisdom, and can I say love, well, so much is at stake, and I think all of us know that, which is why for people of conscience, for people with a concern for ethics, it's so important for us to take seriously the health of our own religious communities, but also to be concerned about the health of our neighbors of other religious traditions. Now, the United States is the most religiously diverse country in the world. But did you know that that diversity is, uh, is sequestered in about 4% of our population? Um, so about 76% of Americans claim to be Christian. Uh, the percentage is higher in the South, higher in the Midwest than it is on the coast. But it's um, about 76% of Americans affiliate with some form or another of the Christian faith. The next largest religious group, about 15%, are the people who call themselves non-religious. And then um, the, uh, about 4% would be committed members of uh, other religious traditions. And, uh, uh, and put us all together. And we have this very, very diverse nation. And cities like Minneapolis and, and St. Paul are cities that, where this is just part of our daily experience. A very different world than your grandparents, wouldn't you say? You can wake up in the morning and by the time you get to the office, you've met a person from another one of the world's religions. And by the time lunch, two or three more. And by the time you have dinner, three or four more. It's a very different world than your grandparents had for whom interreligious dialogue meant Lutherans perhaps talking to Methodists. <laughs> and when Catholics and Lutherans married, it was considered an interreligious marriage and a cause for some scandal. I'll tell you a little bit about my own religious story. I, I, grew, up, uh, I grew up fundamentalist. Um, I grew up in the kind of fundamentalist background that Garrison Keillor, Minnesota's own, also grew up in, a little group called the, the Plymouth Brethren. In his broadcast, when he talks about the sanctified brethren, or in his books, those are my people. And uh, I grew up in a world where uh, it was absolutely certain that the world was created in 4004 BC in six days. Uh, six 24-hour time periods. I remember being told by more than one preacher, you know, preachers tend to recycle lines that get a laugh. Uh, if the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Then the corollary to that was, if the Bible tells me the whale swallowed Jonah, I believe it. If the Bible tells me Jonah swallowed the whale, makes no difference, I believe it too. And um, 
uh, before saying anything more about my own heritage, I want to say these, it's very important at times like this, when a lot of, uh, a lot of folks demonize and scapegoat fundamentalists to, to say that the people who I grew up with were good-hearted people who loved God and wanted to be good people, wanted to do the right thing, say the right thing, believe the right thing. And um, I'm extremely grateful for my heritage. But there was a dark side to it. And I'm about to share a little bit of my dark side, but whatever your religious tradition, my guess is that very few of us would not be able to talk about a dark side to our tradition as well. Uh, I remember exactly the scene. I don't know why it stayed in my memory so much, partly because it was the first time I'd ever heard anything like this. My parents weren't this way. Uh, but I remember where I was sitting in the 1960s. I was probably about 10 years old and maybe eight or nine years old. And I was in a Sunday school classroom at our church. And I remember the, some of you may have sat in these same sort of steel blue folding chairs, you know, and, and they're arranged in a circle. And I'm with the other kids. And I remember I'm sitting here. I remember the kids sitting around me. I remember my Sunday school teacher sitting right over here. And I remember her teaching us about the curse of ham. Now, you might think this is against pork products for meals. <laughs> but the curse of Ham was quoting a verse from Genesis uh, that was the curse of the sons of Ham or the sons of Canaan. And it was the first time in my life, in church, the first time in my life I'd ever heard an explicitly racist statement. And based on that Bible verse, our Sunday school teacher was telling all of the white children in the room, of course, there were only white people in our church. I didn't know it at that time. But there were people stationed at the door every Sunday so that if an African-American person happened to try to come in, they would be politely but firmly greeted at the door and told there were other churches where they would be more comfortable. So all of the white children sitting in the circle were told by my Sunday school teacher, a very nice lady, were told based on this verse in the book of Genesis, that we should never date people of other races. Because if we did, we might fall in love with them, and if we fell in love with them, we might marry them, and that would be a sin. I didn't, I'd never heard anything like this before. I didn't tell my parents, although I, I thought, I don't think my parents would agree with this because that's not the way they were. But a, a similar wake-up call happened a few years later when Dr. King was shot. And I was with a, a, at a family event, and one of my relatives, I, I, I remember exactly, we were at a restaurant together, and I remember right where I was sitting, and I remember looking across the table at this relative, and I was just shocked, because as a you know, young boy, I loved to hear Dr. King. I remember being inspired by Dr. King's speeches, and, and uh, my parents took me down to Resurrection City when some of the big demonstrations happened, uh, in, in Washington because they said this is part of history and they wanted me to see it. My parents weren't this way, but a relative who I loved and respected who was a Christian, full-time professional Christian worker, if you understand what I mean, I remember he said, I, I, hate, I hate to admit this, but I remember he said, I'm glad they shot that communist devil. The dark side of my religious tradition was that it formed in me an attitude where I was sent into the world always thinking us versus them or them versus us. And whether it was a narrative 
of domination, we're out to conquer the world, take this country back for God, all that kind of language, or whether it was a narrative of victimization, they're oppressing us, they're making it hard for us to live our faith, and so on. It was a, a narrative that sent me into the world within us versus them, them versus us mindset, so that the other existed to be either avoided, converted, or if the other was communist, eliminated. I remember exactly where I was sitting in a Sunday school class when my teacher said, you have a choice. You can believe in God or evolution. Now, by that time, I was about 13 years old, 14 years old. I was really interested in biology. And I remember thinking, well, I guess I just got my exit ticket for my religious community. It's just a matter of time. And it was made worse when I heard some preachers say, you can either follow God or rock and roll. And I know it's a little hard to believe, but I grew my hair long in those days and played guitar. I had a long beard. Some, a lot of us did in those days. Some of us used up all the hair at once, our <laughs> lifetime quota. But I, I remember thinking, uh, any religion that's making me choose between my brain and between music and all the rest, it just didn't make sense. And I would have been on my way out. I was on my way out as a young teenager, except I had one of those powerful converting spiritual experiences on my way out of the faith that ended up keeping me in the faith but not as a fundamentalist anymore. Still a Christian, someone who'd experienced in some, in a very deep way, I still find it very hard to talk about, but in a very profound way, experienced um, the love of God and the God of love it kept me in the faith but I've never been able to sit easily with the kind of faith that I and many of us inherited. And I would say that each of us, in a sense, is living out one or another version of this story. We inherited a tradition. It even could be a tradition of agnosticism or atheism, but we inherited a tradition, and our tradition has an upside and a downside, and we're trying to figure out how to live that. We're trying to figure out how to maximize the upside and cope with the downside because we want to hold our faith in a way that's ethical, that sends us into the world to encounter our neighbor in a way that doesn't make us feel we're being a worse person than we were before. And so we're all working on this kind of negotiation. And uh, you can see then some of the background to um, why I would write a book called A New Kind of Christianity. Um, I, I was reflecting on uh, those first couple of sentences from the Declaration of Independence, you know, when in the course of human affairs, uh, th th that if people are going to separate from another country and declare a revolution, they, they better give, uh, they better, I think the exact words are, declare the causes of separation. Well, I'm not interested in separation from anybody. Don't you think that after 500 years of Protestantism, we've probably had enough of that? Uh, what I'm interested in, though, is a differentiation that is not separation. Uh, and I think that's possible. I think all diversity doesn't have to be division. And uh, no one has explained this better for me than, um, than Phyllis Tickle in her book, The Great Emergence. And I'm going to create a little parable for you here that might help make sense of that. Imagine a block here in uh, Minneapolis or St. Paul, uh, a city block, and imagine there are two houses next to each other, and then go to their back fence, and there are two houses on the next street next to each other. So you have four pieces of property that are adjacent. 
and imagine that there's a fence dividing these four pieces of property. And let's imagine in one of these, uh, one of these homes lives the uh, liturgical Christian family. These would be the Catholics and the Anglicans, the Eastern Orthodox. Probably most Lutherans would consider themselves part of this family. Some Methodists would be in this family, some in another. But we have this family of Christians who lives on the liturgical lot in a liturgical home. This is a very nicely decorated home, by the way. <laughs> Stained glass windows and uh, an organ in the living room and so on. Uh, next door is the charismatic family. And uh, this is the family that has a lot of loud parties late at night. And they're always having a good time and the windows are open and they're having fun. And um, so you've got sort of the, the charismatic and Pentecostal family living next to the liturgical family. Now let's go to the back fence. And behind them are two more families. You've got the evangelical family living in one house. Very nicely manicured lawn, very well maintained, lines are all straight and so on, and a very upright and good and solid family. And uh, uh, everyone in the neighborhood uh, knows that they're, they're good and upright uh, people. And um, next door to them are the social justice people. Um, they, um, uh, they are the people who are always involved in every cause, they've always got uh, posters out in their front yard whenever an election comes and lots of bumper stickers of different causes on their cars and they're the social justice family. So imagine we've got these four families living uh, on a block and they're all their properties uh, adjoin. Now what happens when the daughter of the liturgical family starts dating the son of the uh, charismatic family? the boy next door and the girl next door. Suddenly, these parents who've wanted to keep their distance from each other find themselves getting connected. What happens when it turns out that the social justice family, they're the best cooks on the block? And the, um, the liturgical family and the evangelical family are always going over to the fence to borrow recipes. And these four families, what would happen if they've lived these independent lives, but more and more they start to become friends, and they start to, you find them where the four fence posts meet. You find them at that corner, standing in that corner of their property, and people who used to just be polite and cordial but distant start actually liking each other and getting interested in each other and sharing some of their treasures, sharing tools, sharing recipes, uh, Stuff starts to happen around that back corner. What you end up with is a situation where each member of each tradition starts to share and receive treasures across the back fence from the other tradition. And each family does not lose its identity, but its identity is differentiated from what it had been before when they lived in isolation. And I think a part of what is emerging among us is a, actually a convergence. And what's happening to many of us is either we're learning to actually put a, a gate in those fences so that we can go back and forth, or maybe there's even been talk of tearing down some of the fences altogether. Now what this involves, I'll just mention a couple of things. It involves separating from sectarianism. 
where we start to see one another as people with stories and stop seeing one another as this group is right, that group is wrong, and we start to understand the story of why this group behaves as it does and why that group does. Secondly, we start dealing with common stresses and common challenges. Because guess what? When the economy takes a nosedive, it affects all four families. When global climate change happens, it affects all four families. When we're living on the verge of war, all four families are affected. And when they start talking about their common struggles living in this world, it, it's, it's a change. It's a new kind of identity that they develop. As well, it, it all works out very nicely when you, when you can place people along a single line, a continuum, and at one end you have the liberals and at the other end you have the conservatives. We know where everybody stands. But what happens when we start, some of the liberals start saying, yeah, but you know what, there's a couple of ideas that the conservatives have that I like. And some of the conservatives say, you know what, it's a couple of ideas that the liberals have that I like. And what happens when we start trading some of those strengths as well? And we realize that liberalism has an upside and a downside, and conservatism has an upside and a downside. Then things get really interesting. We move beyond a kind of bipolar identity, and, uh, and things get mixed up. And then when we start talking to each other and we move into conversations, conversations create conversions. Not conversions from one identity to another, but from one way of holding your identity to another. And that's why I've been especially interested in these last several years in questions that are being raised that are forcing Christians to talk to each other in ways that are transformative. And so I'll just mention 10 of the questions that I, I've been grappling with. I've been hearing them come up all around the world. I'll just run through them. And then maybe when we have some discussion in a couple of minutes, we can start practicing that kind of conversation. First is what I would call the narrative question. What is the big narrative arc of the Christian story, of the biblical story? Because depending on what that narrative arc is, what that big story is, we will go into the world with a different sense of identity, a different attitude toward our neighbors, toward the planet, and so on. How do we negotiate authority? The second question is the authority question. And all of us who are Christians hold the Bible in great, with great uh, respect. But what does it mean to talk about the Bible as an authoritative document? What kind of authority? Third is the God question. And the way I would phrase it is very simple. Simple Is God violent? Because based on what you say, I don't care if you're Muslim, Christian, uh, whatever, how you answer that is God violent question, well, I'll feel a little different if I live next door to you, whatever your religion, depending on how you answer that question. Because what you believe God is like makes certain things more or less possible for you. Uh, fourth question who is Jesus and why is he important? Because if you answer the first three questions differently, the fourth question uh, it maybe looks a little bit different. I know when people say the name Mother Teresa, Desmond Tutu, Dr. King, they have a certain response. And there are other names, I won't mention them, that of religious leaders we could say, and people would have the opposite kind of response. Where should Jesus' name fit in in that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of scenario? Uh, fifth question, what is the gospel? What is it about? What is our message, our basic message? Is it good news for Christians only, or is it good news for everyone? Uh, sixth, what are we going to do about the church? Seventh, the sex question. How, not just who's right and who's wrong, but how can we talk about the sex issue without dividing from each other? 
And uh, how can we live with differing opinions on any number of sexual issues? Eighth is the future question. What kind of future do we anticipate? How does that affect our behavior now? Ninth is the pluralism question. How do we relate to people of other faiths? And tenth is the what do we do about these first nine questions? How do we talk about them without killing each other kind of question? And um, so that to me is, is this very, very exciting moment that we're at a, po uh, at a moment where we're coming to our back fences and we're having new kinds of conversations and it's changing us in the process. 500 years ago, almost, uh, in, well, in, in seven years, it'll be the anniversary. 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed those uh, theses to the door, uh, as the story goes, in Wittenberg. Theses are statements. Statements create debate. Sometimes in the process, they create hate. And the result of debate is that we'll end up in a new state. Maybe today what we need is not statements to create debate. Maybe today we need questions. Questions that create conversations. Conversations that create friendships. Friendships that bring us on a new quest. Statements to state, questions to quest. This to me is what a new kind of Christianity is about. Thank you. This may be an impossible question to answer, so let me begin with this one. Uh, can you define for us emerging church movement? Yes, well, this is a, a term that is often associated with my name that I very seldom use. But maybe I could say it like this. This conversation we've been talking about is emerging in a lot of different sectors of the church. In fact, maybe I could make this analogy. Imagine a tree and you know how a tree grows taller actually by growing fatter. A lot of us have been doing that without the taller part, but the, every year, right around now, in this time of year, the tree is adding a new ring. And um, uh, that new ring reflects the tree's experience in today's weather conditions, this season's weather conditions. So now take that tree and let that represent the Christian faith. And so maybe the south western part of the tree is the Catholic part of the faith, and the southeastern part maybe is the evangelical, and the northeastern part maybe is the reformed part of the faith, and the northwestern, you, you know, we could just divide up the tree in that way. Now, an interesting thing happens when you go through global climate change, or you have a really bad drought year, or a really good rain year. The tree now, as a whole, is experiencing, because of its shared external environment, it's, it's going through a similar experience. And when people on the outer ring of each of those sectors of the church are involved in that shared experience, you can be at a time when to be a Pentecostal dealing with the contemporary issues of today's world has more in common with a Roman Catholic dealing with the issues of today's world and vice versa than the Pentecostal has in common with other Pentecostals who are dealing with issues of the 1950s or the 1920s. And this, of course, with Catholics, they would have a lot more history to be dealing with. But suddenly, that conversation becomes similar, saying, we have to grapple with what it means to be a Pentecostal Christian, a Catholic Christian, a Presbyterian Christian, a Mennonite Christian. We have to grapple with what it means to be a Christian in this fast-changing world 
that many of our parents and grandparents don't even understand and are just intimidated by. And that's what it really is to me. It's, it's a conversation among Christian leaders and, and Christians of all types who are saying something's going on. We're in the midst of a kind of spiritual global climate change and we have to adapt and deal with this and adjust. Are other faith traditions undergoing similar emergent conversations in your experience? I'm so glad uh, that that question gets asked because I think this is exactly what's happening. Uh, and I think um, we can often get fooled into thinking the big issue is sort of the class of civilizations uh, narrative of the Christian civilization versus the Muslim situation. I think that's, that's very far from the truth. I think there are parallel struggles going on in Islam, in Judaism, in Christianity, in Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, and so on. And uh, it, I've been so honored and privileged in the last few years to be involved with people of these different traditions. In fact, if I could just tell a brief anecdote in this regard. Uh, it was about seven or eight years ago. I was uh, still a pastor. I was in my office working on a sermon one Wednesday afternoon, and I get a phone call. Hello, my name is Rabbi such and such. I represent a group of 75 rabbis who've read all your books. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, my wife hadn't read all my books. You know, I was really surprised. And uh, it's my fault for writing too many, not her fault. But uh, I, uh, he said, we'd really like to talk um, because we think we're going through the same kind of things in the world of synagogues as you're going through in relation to churches. So I think there are fascinating parallels and it, wouldn't it be interesting if people on the outer ring of the Christian tree getting conversations with people on the outer ring of the Muslim tree and the, Judas, and the Jewish tree and the uh, uh, Hindu tree and the Buddhist tree um, and the, all the other, the indigenous religions tree, and we enter into discussion. I, it just becomes fascinating when you're open to be in conversation across all of those, uh, all of those traditions. Do you experience any pushback from within the... Christian uh, tradition, Christian churches, and if so, what's the, what's the nature of that pushback, and how do you respond? Well, all I'll say is, uh, don't Google my name. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I, I have been blessed now, and I've earned some extremely loyal critics. Uh, but no, uh, I, I think if, I, if we can go, imagine my little analogy of a, of a lot, uh, of a, a piece of property, you could almost imagine if some people are walking from the house out to the back corner to talk with people across the fence, there will be other people who will think, you can't do that, you're weakening our identity. And they will then go to the opposite corner and almost barricade themselves in the corner and say, we will not be in conversation with those people because that will water down or weaken our identity. And this happens in, in every tradition where this kind of thing goes on. My personal belief is that we have two unacceptable alternatives and we need to find a third. The one alternative in whatever our religious community is, is that we hold an identity that we hold in opposition to the other. It's us against you. Uh, and our identity is counter-dependent on other identities. Um, another option, we don't want that, so then what we do is we reduce our identity so that it means less and less to be a Christian or a Catholic or a Baptist or whatever. And, and if you're only faced with two choices, strong religious identity that is oppositional and no religious identity, I can understand why people keep going to the oppositional. But is it possible that we could discover a deep and authentic identity in our various faith traditions, a strong, deep, real identity 
that makes us go toward the other with love and respect, with open arms and a willingness to talk and, and begin friendships, that that becomes an expression of our identity rather than a compromise of our identity. Just speaking as a Christian, I would say that if we follow someone who said, love your neighbor as yourself, we have a good reason to do that. Question number two in your list of 10 questions, I believe, was the authority question. Uh, how does an emergent Christian, or how do you answer the, the authority question? Yes, well, here, the, the way I open this up in the book is I, I, I say, um, I, I use an analogy. A lot of us who love the Bible, our love for the Bible is mixed at an almost, at a pre-critical level, meaning before we've ever really thought about it, our love for the Bible is merged with a love for the Constitution because we grew up in constitutional democracies. And so in our secular lives, in our political lives, the authority is the Constitution. And so without even realizing it, we promote the Bible to the level of a Constitution. So when we say the Bible has authority, we mean it has constitutional authority. The problem is the Bible was written long before there were constitutions. And it's not a very good constitution. It's very good at other things. But it, it, if a constitution's purpose is to reduce discussion and disagreement so that we can make clear laws and know how things are, of course, we, uh, we can talk about how well our constitution does that, but I mean, it was designed by the same group of people in the same room talking about the same problems. And the Bible was, you know, came from a community of people over, uh, over many centuries. Uh, well, we're just dealing with two very different kinds of documents. So I would suggest we look for other analogies to understand the authority of the Bible. And um, uh, there are any number of options at our disposal, but I suggest we think of the Bible as an authoritative library. So, for example, I'm sure here in the cities there, are, um, there, there would be a legal library. I imagine there, there are theological libraries. I imagine there is a medical library. And the job of a medical library, to take that example, is not to eliminate all the books that disagree, but it's to preserve the tensions and disagreements and discoveries in the medical community. You want to preserve, you have reasons to preserve medical uh, procedures, descriptions of medical procedures that are no longer in use because you want to know how today's medical procedures evolved and developed from procedures of the past. Well, what if we were to, so, so you understand, a good library preserves disagreements, whereas a good constitution enforces agreements. Diversity is a good thing in a library, a bad thing in a constitution. So what I would like to suggest is one analogy for rediscovering the Bible is as an authoritative library. And I think if you try that on for a few years, you'll find you end up able to appreciate and love and respect the Bible more in that context. Plus, it makes you much less likely to strap on a bomb or pick up a gun. You responded to the authority question as a good Protestant. You went straight to scripture. Uh, can you, as a Christian in, a, say, a more liturgical tradition where uh, the, the source of authority is the teaching of the church itself or the, the structures or yes. the hierarchy of the church, the bishops in the church, for instance, can you describe what the uh, emergent view of that kind of uh, ecclesial yes. authority is? Well, f first, I, I should say, you know, this could be a little bit like 
the neighbor uh, getting involved in the marital dispute next door. That's usually not a good idea. Um, because in many ways, as a Protestant, I think all of us who are Protestant, we look with great empathy on some of the struggles going on in the Catholic Church right now, where some of these authority issues are being worked out in the, uh, and grappled with in, in the ways that, uh, that you just described. Um, maybe I could just offer one comment on this. Um, I've noticed that the concept of what is persuasive and authoritative changes over time. And I, I just re remember a conversation I had, oh, this is 20 years ago, with a, a Chinese scholar uh, who, uh, and this was right you know, in the period after uh, Mao, Mao's China was now going through an opening. And um, this Chinese scholar had heard me give a lecture, and she said, I really liked what you said because you did not yell. She said, I grew up with no religion, and now I'm wanting to learn about religion. She said, you know, in China, the China that I grew up, we were not even allowed to talk about religion, so I'm interested. But when I come here to America and I go to visit churches to learn about God, a lot of people yell. She said, where I come from, if anyone yells, you know he's a liar. Uh, and, and then she said, and I also like that you did not tell us what we have to believe or, and threaten us if we don't. She said, because where I come from, if anyone threatens you to not, if you don't believe, we know that person is a liar. You understand? So I think this is part of our challenge. And it raises the question, what creates authority what creates a sense of believability? And here's a great irony. I think in today's world, your ability to admit your fallibility increases your authority, whether you're applying it to human leaders or to the Bible. When someone claims perfection, they become less credible, at least to a lot of us. So this is part of the milieu we're in, in rediscovering and I personally think this is a great moment because I think the authority that will matter most as we move forward is moral authority. So you might well say that the, that the person with the most moral, the Christian with the most moral authority in the world in recent decades was Mother Teresa. And it wasn't for traditional reasons. It was because of a moral authority that came from serving the poor. So th those would be some of my thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. The latest issue of Sojourners magazine asks is the emerging church for whites only? And it raises a series of questions about racism, poverty, uh, and others have crit critiqued the emerging church movement as fairly male-dominated. Can you respond to some of those critiques? Well, that's a great question. And um, first, I, I think whatever this emerging thing is, it, it, it's, I, I guess I'm pretty well-placed to make statements about this because I travel around the world and I see this emerging conversation uh, all around the world. And it is very diverse. Um, the problem is, in America, that all of us come from a context. So if you're Roman Catholic, 100% of ordained clergy are male. If you're evangelical Protestant, 95% of your ordained clergy are male. If you're mainline Protestant, you might think we're way better than that, 85% are male. So anything that involves religious professionals 
is going to, uh, is always going to involve a higher percentage of men than women for a while. I shouldn't say always. That will change over time, and it is changing. And, and thank God it's changing more rapidly than a lot of people expected. But we all come from a position that, that this is a heavily male-dominated profession when you're dealing with religious professionals. The exciting thing is that, that that's changing, and, and this emerging conversation, one of its characteristics is minimizing the clergy-laity distinction so that uh, uh, hopefully more and more people have a voice at the table. On the issue of whiteness, this is a complicated issue, but let me say maybe two things. First, I, I think it's safe to say that in the United States, the white churches are in trouble that our non-white churches are not in. In other words, attendance has been declining in some of our mainline denominations for 40 years and more, and attendance has, been, has been begun declining in our evangelical, many of our evangelical churches for about 10 years now. And so, and there, if you take the average age of even the big megachurches that everybody points to as these great successes, in many of our big megachurches, the average age is rising more than one year per year. You understand what that means? It's failing to retain young people. And so uh, the white churches are in trouble in a lot of ways, churches of, the, of traditional uh, white American heritage. And um, so I think it becomes unfair to try to drag African-American folks, Latino folks, Native American folks, and others, Asian folks, why drag them into the big problems of the white churches, you see? Um, there, there are different issues going on. I remember an African-American preacher friend of mine said, look, I know you want to have uh, you know, more diversity in your dialogues. You want to have more diversity. Why don't you come join me dealing with my problems in the inner city? So what I hope will happen is not that white folks will try to get non-white folks involved in their problems, but all of us will get interested in the well-being of one another's religious communities and we'll join one another, not trying to get everybody on the same script, but realize we're all dealing with issues that relate, as this uh, forum does, to the common good. Um, but I would also add that there are, beginning, there are the beginnings of statistical evidence. For example, a couple of years ago, several of our historic African-American denominations for the first time experienced numerical decline. And so it may well be that some of the trends that have affected uh, our predominantly white churches will increasingly affect uh, some of our other uh, ethnic uh, churches with eth uh, different ethnic heritages. And it may well be that in the coming years we'll all find out that we're in this, uh, some of these shifts and tensions and struggles together. The kind of uh, conversation you're having in terms of a new kind of Christianity, is that conversation happening in other parts of the world, Europe specifically, for instance? Yes. Well, as most of you know, the church in Europe experienced uh, a century of historic, unprecedented numerical decline. I was told a couple of years ago when I was in the Netherlands that in 1900, 91% of Dutch people were in church on a Sunday morning, and in 2000, 1% of Dutch people were in church on a Sunday morning. Now, whether it's 1% or 4%, you know, you might debate, but it's, it's quite a remarkable change in 100 years. And, and I don't think it's wise to jump to conclusions about why that happened. I think it's a very interesting discussion that deserves a lot of attention. Um, America has had a different history than Europe, but, um, uh, and there are a whole lot of differences as well. We might see some similar trends. But um, I, I, there are very vibrant 
discussions about these sort of issues. What will be the future of the Christian faith going on in Europe? And in many ways, especially in England, those discussions were happening before uh, I became aware of them here in the United States. Um, I will be on a plane in a couple of weeks for Africa, and there's a new generation of young African Christians who, are, who also see the need for a new kind of Christianity of their own creation, uh, because um, both the Christianity that they inherited from our traditional churches and the more recent prosperity gospel Christianity both have, pre present problems, and they're trying to say we need a faith that deals with the issues that we wake up with every day. Um, so that it's happening there. It's certainly happening in Latin America. It's certainly happening in Asia. Um, different issues rise to the fore. For example, uh, I was with um, a group of Christians who I would say are part of this global conversation in the country of Malaysia. But when you're with Christians in Malaysia that is a Muslim-majority country, your issues of Christian identity are very different than if you're a Christian in England, where they don't even have the same kind of separation of church and state that we're used to here in the United States. So it, it is, it's different, but it's a similar conversation. And I think all of us benefit from listening in and learning from uh, other parallel conversations. Imagine yourself at a conference of people working with young people in the Christian church today. And this is your, your last question, so it's got to be a great answer, Brian. <laughs> yeah. What do, you, what do you say about uh, the church to the young people who, who often have uh, great skepticism or questions about traditional forms of religious life here, Christianity in particular? What yes. do you say to those leaders? Well, I, I, I hope I won't be violating, violating anybody's confidence in telling you that I was with a group of young Christian leaders last night in a, a, a little room in a bar here in Minneapolis somewhere. I mean, even that, the world has changed. Some of them were Baptists. and. Uh, <laughs> But I should, I, I should tell you, I, I learned something last night, a question that came up two or three times. You know, I was talking about a new kind of Christianity, and a number of people said, why even bother? Why even bother retaining this thing called Christianity? So you have to understand, I get a whole lot of pushback in the religious world from people saying, the old kind is just fine, thank you very much. We don't need, might need minor cosmetic surgery, but you know, the underlying issues are fine. But here are people who are at a very, very different place. And so here's what I would say to people, especially involved in, in youth work. I would say this is a fantastic time to be alive and a fantastic time to be in ministry. If you understand that we're in a new world, your job is not simply to take a 14-year-old and make sure that he can be assimilated into the church of today. Your job is to take a 14-year-old and help and enthuse that person and infuse that person with hope and motivation to become one of the architects and exemplars of the Christian faith of tomorrow. And to do that is not a watering down of your faith, a watering down of the message. To do that is a rediscovery of what it means to help people become authentic followers of Christ, people who actually get up every morning believing that the most important thing in life is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If we develop young people who, go, who, who are so deeply formed that that's actually how they, they wake up in the morning wanting to live, uh, on, on Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday, this to me becomes a very, very powerful thing. And it ends up being good news if I can return back to where I started in my original comments. 
You know, if, if we every Sunday deploy people into the world who are being sent out to love their neighbors as themselves, that's really good news for Muslims. It's really good news for Buddhists. It's great news for atheists. Um, but if we send out people who are just out for themselves or out for their religion or out for their political party, well, we know where that leads. That's what we got now. And this, to me, is uh, a, a great moment of opportunity and a great uh, opportunity for a new kind of faith. Thanks. Thank you, Brian McLaren.